Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. We at Food Junkies claim that sugar is addictive, but what about fat? Welcome to Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today speaking with Dr. Naeem Akhtar Khan a researcher who claims that fat alone can be addictive even when not in connection with sugar. Dr. Naeem Khan is Professor of Physiology at Burgundy University, Dijon, France. He has had a research team in nutritional physiology and toxicology and is principal author or co-author of more than 250 research peer-reviewed articles and a number of scientific books, many focusing on diet-induced obesity factors. He is editor of Nutrients, Oz One, and Journal of Clinical Medicine. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Biologists. So we at Food Junkies are especially interested in his review of the literature on fat and fatty food addiction. Yes, we know about sugar, but what about fat? So welcome, Dr. Naeem Khan. Can you start by just telling us a little bit of the personal story? What got you interested in the whole idea about researching fatty food addiction? First, I would like to express my thanks to you for giving this possibility to talk about our research work and research interests. I was interested in obesity, as there are many people who are obese in my family. My mother was obese. She always used to say that she did not eat well, still she was obese. This point hit to my mind when I was a child, how a person who did not eat a lot could be an obese. And this is how my journey started from obesity to fat addiction and research. Thank you. Can you give us an idea of what kind of research are you doing or have you done? Yeah, at the moment, we are working on anti-obesity strategies. We are advocating that there might be a sixth sense of taste, the taste for fat. We have identified in the tongue papillae the fat taste receptors like CD36 and GPR120, whose expression is down-regulated in most of the obese, and therefore there is less orosensory detection of dietary fat. So you're claiming that there are six taste receptors in the tongue. So there's salty, there's unami, there's sugar, sour, and, and fat. Acid. Yeah. Acid, oh. yeah. And fat as well. Yeah, fat is a sixth one. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. You'll tell us more about that. Before we get into it, just as a curiosity, where are you getting the research funding for this? Because the the concept that there's a sick ingredient that might be making foods addictive, surely the food industry is not funding this. So who would fund something like this? Yeah, you're right. Certainly food industries, they are not very close friends to us in this context. But our research is funded by regional, central government and EU grants obtained through CAL proposals. We also collaborate for clinical work with different African teams through bilateral grants. Thank you. So let's delve into this whole area of uh, fat addiction and uh, the physiological and the psychological aspects of that. Because 
We've been talking about sugar addiction in our food addiction world endlessly. And a lot of people will say fat not addictive. My first question to you, are you looking at studies specifically looking at fat and are you looking at foods that are without sugar so that there's no confounding variable of the sugar? Yeah, the first thing is that fatty food addiction can be identified on the basis of distinct features of salience and inability to control the intake of specific types of food. That's very similar to the addiction to psychoactive substances. In fact, fat binge eating is very similar to sweet binge eating, Mm. as both are associated with dopamine signaling within the mesolimbic reward circuit. However, there is a co-founding factor that high-fat eating may lead to increased weight gain and adiposity, and this is not true for sugar addiction. So there are differences, but there are some common features too. I just want to clarify for our listeners, when you're looking at foods that are high in fat, there's no carbohydrates or sugar that could be confounding the, the question. Yeah, this we have conducted studies in animals, but in human beings, it's very difficult to attribute that it is only due to the presence of fat. But we did questionnaire and we asked the obese subjects and we deduced that they were indeed talking about fat and fat-derived substances. Can you give an example of what kinds of fatty foods could be addictive that don't have sugar, like fatty meats, for example? Some foods with no carbohydrates, like steak and bacon, have a lower addictive potential or neural reward activation as compared to addictive drugs. Take an example. The products like tobacco are also in the same category. Low reward products trigger addiction in the long run. There is clear evidence the dietary fatty acids do activate the reward system through orosensory and get to brain pathways. The loss of control over consumption is a feature of addictive eating. Overeating, the bacon, cheese, nuts, and steak are naturally high in fat. The loss of control ratings for them was lesser than processed food, but higher than chicken breast and vegetables. Okay, all right. So on a continuum, processed foods would be the highest but bacon and steak and cheese would still have some addictive potential more than regular foods like yeah, uh, yeah. vegetables. Highly processed foods like pizza, ice cream, white bread, cookies, chips are very addictive as they contain refined carbohydrates and fat. These foods are highly reinforcing and some individuals consume them compulsively. Yes, but could you compulsively eat too much bacon and steak and cheese? Not so much, but as a in the long run, of course. For example, as I try to compare tobacco and cocaine or morphine, yes. both of the categories trigger addiction, but in a different way. For example, drug is very active to trigger reward circuit, but tobacco, nothing. When we start smoking, when somebody offers a cigarette uh-huh. and you don't start smoking immediately. By and by, you smoke, you become addict. Smoking or tobacco has a lower addictive potential. The same, same thing is for nuts and bacon and meat. There's lesser addictive potential, but in the long run, they will also trigger addictive eating behavior. That's interesting news for our keto community, where sometimes that's all they're eating is that kind of fatty foods. In fact, they often encourage fatty foods because they want the fat to replace the sugar. To, for satiation. But as you're saying that if a person is predisposed to addiction, they could be in trouble with those foods. Yeah, this is very interesting because people say we should take 
a food without sugar. And all the day, they try to avoid sugar. But sugar is very important for the body. For example, one, I'm, I'm talking to you. My brain will use five grams of sugar per hour. In one hour of interview, my brain, only the brain, will require five grams. I'm not talking about the whole body. That's the reason we should take sugar, but in a controlled way. If I can challenge you, the, the keto people will say, after a certain point, we don't need any sugar because we can rely on our ketones for our brain energy source. Yeah, the problem is here. Yes, I, I agree with you. But if you take less carbohydrate, less sugar, and more meat, or meat-derived substances, the higher the intake of meat, the higher is the intake of amino acids. Means you will produce more and more urea and ammoniac. So there will be high renal load. So while you're increasing in a node, it may trigger some diseases like gout disease or other diseases because the concentrations of urea and ammoniac in the body, the higher the functions of liver to remove and to transform it into glutamic acid and glutamine. Uh-huh. And this overload is not good for our body. The physiologically, and I'm a physiologist, it's not good. For rather, we should have a balanced diet. You would not be an advocate of the keto diet then, or one that where the carbohydrates are under 20 grams of carbohydrates, for example. Yeah, I will not advocate it. Okay. Another point is this. The person who will be on, on, carbo, on ketone diets or carnivore diets, they will have less vitamins. And vitamins are important for our growth, the maintenance of our body. And this, how can we take it? We ignore completely this point. Related to that, One of the things that people talk about in the keto community is something called fat intolerance. Do you know anything about that phenomena where people eat a lot of saturated fats? Some people have a problem with excess saturated fat. It makes them nauseous, it makes them tired, it makes them fatigued, headache. Do you know what that's about? Yeah, saturated fat is not good in the excess quantity, of course. Yeah, we know that. Palmitic acid, for example, it induces insulin resistance in a number of models. And trans fatty acids, also contribute to deterioration of insulin sensitivity. And we know that prolonged intake of acid or palmitic acid-rich diets reduces mesolimbic dopaminergic signaling and sensitivity to the rewarding effect of amphetamines. So saturated fatty acids also favor insulin resistance, and that's not good for health. I'd like to ask about that. My understanding is that Excess sugar, I'm talking like added sugar, far more than the pancreas and the liver can manage, will cause insulin resistance. But you're saying that fat itself can also cause insulin resistance. Can you explain that? Yeah, particularly saturated fatty acids. Yes, okay. I'm talking about monounsaturated fatty acids, like palm oil. That's good low quantity because we should have a balanced monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and saturated fat. But if we have excess of saturated fatty acids, they will trigger the activation of IKKB and TORS signaling in hepatocytes, macrophages, and protocytes, and will trigger insulin resistance in these models. And that's bad for health. It's not because there's too much sugar that's demanding more insulin. Yeah, it's, it's nothing to do with that. We are talking about saturated fatty acids, not yeah. about sugar. Because sugar, of course, in excess triggers insulin resistance. We know that. But fatty acids, they are ingested, incorporated in the plasma membrane and particularly in the phospholipids. And therefore, we interfere with insulin signaling, the receptor to insulin. And this interaction with signaling cascade of insulin will render 
insulin receptors inactive. Okay. So this is how we can say insulin resistance. Means the receptor functioning of insulin is not working well. This can be done by saturated fatty acid. That's interesting. That's an extra piece of information about what can contribute to insulin resistance. It's very interesting because we've been focusing on how insulin resistance is created by excess sugar, but you're saying saturated fat, not all fats, but excess saturated fat can also affect the insulin receptors and therefore uh, create insulin resistance. One should be careful about fat, whether it's saturated, unsaturated, in terms of calories. Mm -hmm. so, as I said, fat is fat. One should be careful about fat. And ultimately, all kinds of fat in the excess are bad for health. One of the reasons that people talk about eating fat instead of sugar is that it satiates. If you're not eating sugar, then you're going to be hungry because complex carbohydrates may not be filling. Some people make the argument that carbohydrates just make you more hungry, but it's fat that is satiating, partly because of how it affects the hormones. Can you comment on what the role of fat is in leptin and ghrelin? Now, chronic half fat diet given to animals a persistent inhibitory effect on plasma ghrelin levels. It exerts an inhibitory effect on ghrelin concentrations. Another point is that ghrelin is not only released from stomach epithelium, but also taste birds. And we know that taste birds not only synthesize ghrelin, but also express ghrelin receptors. So ghrelin in the buccal cavity is modulating fat taste perception, transmitting the information on fat arrival in the mouth to the brain and in the brain to the reward system. So you're saying that the moment you put a bit of fat in your mouth, you're already starting to get hungry and desire more fat. Exactly. Fat taste receptors in the mouth, I mean, in taste bud cells, are playing a role, I should say, before the brain is started. Uh -huh. Or we can say information from tongue to brain is very important to activate brain gut access. And ghrelin is playing a role at first hand in the mouth at the papillae level. And ghrelin tells you that you're hungry, even yes. just by virtue of putting the food into your mouth. I would like to say the ghrelin is amplifying yes. fat signal. And the brain says, hey, fat is coming, let's prepare. Yes, okay. I guess it's the concept of the appetizer. You put yes. an appetizer in your mouth and now you want more, but you're going to want more fat, I guess. Yes. And what about leptin? How does that affect leptin. Leptin being our satiety hormone, the hormone that makes us feel full at the end of a meal. Leptin and leptin resistance are playing important roles in fat addiction. At first hand, as I said, the ghrelin is secreted by taste bud cells. The same thing is the leptin. We have demonstrated that the cells that express fat taste receptors do express leptin receptors. The leptin is somehow playing an autocrine role in the regulation of fat taste perception in the mouth. And the decreased leptin in the mouth, some sort of leptin resistance in the mouth, will further influence food intake, particularly fatty food intake. But how does the leptin resistance occur? Leptin is action at different levels. Leptin receptors are expressed by lateral hypothalamus and also in ventral tegument area. Leptin administration suppresses feeding by acting on GABA neurons. And secondly, leptin administration reduces feeding and dopamine release within nucleus and commons, thus exerting a suppressive action against food-induced reward. Leptin resistance is associated with high cannabinoid levels and high orexin in the neurons. And we know that cannabinoids 
and orexins trigger food intake. And it has been shown that administration of orexins into ventral tegmental area increases dopamine release. So that's leptin resistance. So is there a sweet spot, as it were, with eating fat where it is satiating, but then it becomes non-satiating? It becomes addictive? Is this a case for moderation where you can eat so much so that the leptin kicks in and makes you feel that's its job, but then if you eat too much, you can become resistant? Yes. But in this case, if we are in leptin resistance, there's a direct activation of reward system because leptin resistance is leading to high cannabinoid levels. But how do you get to leptin resistance? Not much is known. The scientists directly administer leptin into the brain, and then they measure dopamine release, and they identify neurons expressing the receptors for leptin in a rat model. Uh, is there implication that eating too much fat can lead to leptin resistance? Yeah, because we know that in some cases, leptin receptors are down-regulated in arcuate nucleus and nucleus incumbens. Getting back to the addictive nature of fats, I read that the saturated fats are more addictive than the poly and the monosaturated fats. Can you speak to that? Yeah, as I said, that saturated fatty acids, they are more addictive because they exert their action at different levels. They trigger the activation of dopaminergic system, and they also bring more calories, and they trigger hyperinsulinemia. This is how they trigger insulin resistance and that will lead to addictive nature. Now, let's get back to your discovery about the taste receptors. Genetics may predispose a person to fat addiction at this level. Is that true? Yeah, we conducted a number of clinical studies in obese and non-obese children, adolescents and adults in different countries like Algeria, Morocco, France, Czech Republic, and Senegal, and Tunisia, and in France. You know why? Because obesity is different in different countries because what we eat in Algeria and Tunisia, we don't eat in France, in Czech Republic. So a Czech obese will be different from Arabic obese. Oh, really? Can you explain that more? That's very interesting. Phenotypically, they are same by apparent look. But the factor that are inducing obesity in Arabic, it's more sugar and more fat. But in a Czech person, he's not eating more fat, but rather... It's a lifestyle. He has different one. So we try to compare. Now we are working with Indian population, vegetarian population. In India, there are 600 million people that do not eat meat. They rather feed only vegetables. Still, some of them are obese and it's increasing. So how come a vegetarian is becoming obese? Different, it's the same, but some difference will be in the mechanisms. And what about the fat taste? And we observe that in these countries that I've cited, that obesity is associated with the less orosensory perception of fat in the obese. Some of them have genetic predisposition. There's an association of fatty acid taste receptor, high fat intake, and obesity. So the vegetarian in India has a genetic predisposition to eating more fatty foods in the vegetarian foods. Why is it that an Arab... I, I agree with you. And there are two aspects. One is genetic aspect. Some of them have genetic predisposition of CD36 gene polymorphies. One of my students from a lab trained in France went back to India, published a paper on, on this subject. If they have that genetic predisposition, what are they eating that's different than somebody else? Yeah. What's happening to their body that's different? 
Yeah, yeah that's different because polymorphism is not only involved in taste perception, but also in beta oxidation in the body and also in the burning of fat in the liver and in the stockage of fat in the adipose tissues. And these subjects, they had different diet pattern because dietary habits are also important. Being vegetarian, they eat a lot of fat derived from milk. Other we call butter or clear butter. That's very obesogenic. And in India, according to culture or lifestyle, people love to eat butter. Or clear butter. So what you're saying then is that the person's genetic predisposition not only may make them more vulnerable to fat addiction, but also how the fat is being metabolized, it might make them more likely to become obese than another similar person that is eating the same foods who may not become obese. Yes. And this was our idea. We are working on in parallel. We are trying to develop a kind of kit to detect the genetic polymorphism in the newborn babies. And the idea is, if we could make this kit and we go to the gynecology department where the children are born, they are diagnosed for some diseases. Anyhow, we take blood of newborn babies for the diseases. And with this blood sample, we can tell them whether the baby is suffering from genetic polymorphism for CD36. And we can ask the parents, take care about the dietary habits about lifestyle of the children, they are prone to develop obesity. Would you be able to say to them, because they're prone to develop obesity, avoid dairy fats, for example, or avoid yeah, yes. saturated fats, but somebody else might not have to worry as much? Yes, you're right. But one point is also here, and I would like to make it clear, that one subject who has no genetic polymorphism of CD36, he becomes obese for overeating or because of social economic circumstances. That's not associated with hunger. He becomes addict for fatty food, obese. It has been shown that obesity is also associated with the downregulation of fatty receptor in the tank. In Australia, he has shown that when obese women go for dieting for eight weeks, the receptor that's downregulated comes up. That is the reason when we do some dieting, we lose weight. And then in the beginning, we don't like eating fat. It's not we don't like eating fat. No, it's because the receptor which is downregulated during obesity is upregulated after dieting and uh-huh. is functioning correctly. And so then you don't need as much fat to taste the yeah, fat. Exactly. You're more sensitive to the taste. Yeah, exactly. Presumably, if you're eating a lot of fat, you downregulate and you lose the sensitivity and want more to gain that back. Exactly, you're right, yes. That's part of the concept of the addictive pathway of fat, fat itself. So there's this the taste in the tongue, but there's the vagal intestinal fat sensing. Can you talk to that? Yeah, intestinal vagal input plays an important role in sensing of dietary fat. The gut lipid sensing communicates to striatum. Indeed, surgical resection of vagus nerve prevents stimulation of dopamine release, vagal neurons, respond to intestinal delivery of fat, particularly small intestine, jejunum, mm-hmm. the upper part, close to duodenum, is involved in lipid sensing and suppresses food intake through the release of anorectic peptides like CCK and GLP-1. Anorectic meaning that you're not hungry anymore. Yes. Okay. But in the obese, we have observed that the less lipid sensing, the message on lipid detection in the intestine is downregulated. Right, so they don't become satiated as quickly. Exactly. 
and yeah. it, it goes to the brain. So less secretion of anorectic peptide means less cessation, means again, the whole system is working in a very organized way. Tongue, brain, gut, which is down-regulated during excessive fat-eating behavior. But it sounds like, again, that a certain amount of fat is helpful, but then you can cross the line and then it works against you. Yes. Because of the resistance factor. And we have observed when we have intestinal cell lines in the laboratory and taste bud cell lines in the laboratory, just we incubate these cell lines from two origins with fat, the fat sensors go down. That the higher we eat, the fatty substances, the lower is the sensing and the eating behavior going up and up, it will lead to fat addiction. Yes. Now, you mentioned the endocannabinoid system and how fat seems to trigger that. Is that correct? Yeah. Endocannabinoids, they are fantastic molecules. <laughs> like we know, a tetrahydrocannabinol at low doses induce hyperphagia. Yes. Makes you want to eat a lot. The, the yeah, munchies. Yeah. Yes. And the endocannabinoid stimulate food intake, particularly intake of sugars and fat. Now, it is known that endocannabinoid signaling regulate a synaptic plasticity both in hypothalamus, which possesses hunger center, and mesolimbic center, thus affecting both dopamine function. And interestingly, there is a crosstalk between leptin and GDLN and endocannabinoids are regulating food reward process. They upregulate eating behavior and addictive behavior appears. Can you speak to the hyperpalatability about fat? Yeah, yeah I would like to say that fat confers textural and creaminess to food and makes it more palatable. So from the appearance and the tasting level, food becomes palatable. And food is consumed across all ages from infancy to adulthood to elderly. Evolutionarily, this confers survival and a benefit to human being. However, rich diet induces insulin secretion. And we know that insulin infusion modulates palatability. Now, how does fat create insulin production? Yeah, because when you take excess of fat and you are taking less sugar and your body requires sugar, in this case, then some glycogen is converted into the glucose. And fat, which is stored into in the form of glycogen, is giving to sugar. Fat is giving rise to insulin secretion indirectly. Got it. By the glycogen. Yes. Fat activates sympathetic nervous system. And the insulin secretion via brain is called PVN, paraventricular nucleus, that directly connected to pancreas. And fat stimulates this system and induces the release of insulin. So if I can summarize this, Sugar will directly affect insulin stimulation, but fat does it indirectly. Yes. Yes. That's and we know that insulin induces palatability. And fat storage. Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about interventions now. You've discovered a fair amount about the taste receptors, the sixth taste receptor, and the intestinal fat sensing, and also that there's a genetic predisposition what are some interventions that you're interested in that can help with the obesity crisis? Healthcare policies. For example, in France, the ministry has launched a program by opening CSO, Centre Spécialisé de l'Obésité. Obese subjects are admitted there. They are offered psychological and psychiatric counseling, metabolic counseling, and even sports are offered. Okay. So we should take care of an obese in different point of view. I think one drug cannot help. 
like we are talking about GLP-1. Yes, for example. G- yes, you're right. GLP-1 agonist, receptor agonist, improve glycemic control, stimulate satiety, suppress appetite, and decrease body weight. And we know that they also decrease inflammation. But how they can decrease fat addictive behavior, it's too early to say. Huh. Do they and at all? They talk about decreasing body weight. It's more commercial. But I'm afraid that GLP-1 receptor agonist might have in the long run some adverse effects. For example, in thyroid, C cells in the thyroid express high numbers of GLP-1 receptors. One should be very careful about the role of GLP-1 agonist. Does it decrease the taste for fatty foods or the craving for fatty foods, at least in the initial phase? Yeah, we have not yet. Okay. All right. So you're urging caution in the long term about these because we don't know where else the GLP-1's inhibition could be affecting our body. What is also there that not every obese responds to GLP-1 agonists. That's true. They are responders and non-responders. Medical doctor is uh, giving GLP-1 agonist and he says if the patient does not respond in a month, the still all obese are not sensitive to these agonists. And we completely ignore this point because we are going more commercially and we are the victim of these kind of wave that this is the magic or miraculous part against obesity and can be used to treat all complications released to right. obesity. What about surgical options where they're removing or bypassing important parts of the uh, bowel? Is there any impact there on... Uh, yeah, we know that the surgery induced weight loss, decreased food cravings in food addict subjects. We have conducted some experiments in mice and we did vertical sleeve gastrectomy. And we observed that in these mice, there was increased orosensory detection of fat after weight loss. So what we can say, that decreased sensory part during obesity is reversed after bariatric surgery. That's a good point. So you've had the experience, or at least with mice, that after surgery, mice become less addictive to food. Exactly. But I've had the experience in clinical practice that a lot of people with post-periatric surgery become addicted, like first of all, to alcohol and then to sugars, maybe not right away, but after a year or two. So what's happening there then? Our body in the obese situation is requiring some quantity of energies to maintain the body. Immediately, we practice a bariatric surgery. So the body, which is habituated to have a number of calories for its maintenance, is deprived of these calories. That is the reason that the person after bariatric surgery is feeling very lethargic and sometimes some psychological problems and sometimes with sarcopenia. So we can say some nutrition-related problems arise Uh that we ignore because what we know today and we try to emphasize to the general public, hey, bariatric surgery is giving less food intake. Less food intake means less calories, means body weight is lost. That's fine. Or other associated complications in long run. I have seen some patients during last couple of 15 days, I was in Algeria. I met people which had bariatric surgery 10 years before. Yeah. Most of them become obese again because this is a, if you let me explain, set point happen. During inflammation, there is a neuroinflammation in the brain. So obesity and neuroinflammation are associated together. And during obesity, neuroinflammation makes some 
neuroplastic connections which are new and makes an energy set point very high. When you lose body weight because of dieting or bariatric surgery, the brain says, hey, continue eating. You have to come to this set point. That is the reason there's a failure. And in the long run, we become again obese. Now, for example, you are taking three tries in a day. Then you take four times a day. Yes. Because your body is requiring calories. Right, okay. So the final intervention, which would just be, what is the best diet that you would promote where you get the nurturing effect of fat, the satiety effect, but not the overabundance, which leads to obesity and fat addiction? Yeah, I cannot recommend any diet, but I can say personally, a vegetarian diet that is balanced is good for health. And one should be very careful about vegetarian. In Europe, there's a tendency to go towards vegetarian lifestyle. But people don't know what is a vegetarian lifestyle. We should, when a vegetarian eats food, there's yogurt, there's lentils, a source of iron, there is vegetable and bread, and everything is controlled way. So if we have a balanced vegetarian diet, I think it will help us a lot. And where does the fat fit into that vegetarian diet? Yeah, fat is there, but in a small country, because we take thrice a day milk or milk dry products. What about olive oil, something like that? Yeah, olive oil is is oil, as I said, and fat is fat. Yes, okay. calories. Now, the better part of olive oil is that it is full of monounsaturated fatty acids. And these fatty acids enter competition in the hepatocytes, I mean in the liver, and in the enzymes that are involved in the synthesis of polyunsaturated fatty acids. So monounsaturated fatty acids enter competition in the synthesis of polyunsaturated fatties in the liver and therefore decrease lipid levels. That is the good part of olive oil. Now, just in closing, what research are you doing now? What's your sort of latest interest? Now we have some fat taste receptor agonists, and these agonists bring no calories, no toxic effects. They trigger early activation of fat taste receptors just by local application in the mouth. And the brain gets information, hey, fatty food is coming. And immediately there's high secretion of anorectic peptides. Okay. You're fooling your brain in that you're eating fat so that you don't need to eat more. And this is how we obtain early satiation. Wow. And that means low fat food intake. Yeah, we, we are going towards the license. It will take time, not more than 2030. Wow. Uh, by now, we have done a clinical study in Nantes, and that's very favorable. We'll start the phase one trial in obese in a different country. I cannot say now here. If everything go, um, goes fine, we'll have another approach to decrease fat eating behavior and obesity rather than manipulating diets. Because when we eat some food today, we don't eat because we require calories. We eat for pleasure. We go to restaurants for the pleasure. And that is the reason obesity is going up, up and up arithmetically. Because we live only once. We want to enjoy the life. And when we even do dieting, we are tired of it. No, let's go out and have some good food. By our system, by our agonist, before going to a restaurant, just apply a spray in the mouth. Special receptors appreciate your food. And you say, hey, this is a delicious food. But since you have early satiation, you will less eat. Means you will say, yeah, I'm satisfied. Wow, so that that one plate will be enough and then you're done. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great idea. That's a great idea because you still enjoy your food. Unlike Ozempic, where a lot of people say they just don't enjoy their food at all. That's why they don't want to eat. And and psychologically, 
a human being doesn't want that his life should be controlled. He, he wants to master his life psychologically. So when I say, eat what you want, go where you want, go on holidays on the beach, eat whatever is there, enjoy. Just give a false information to the brain that fat is there. Good. Thank you. I have one more question and then we'll finish off. But this is our signature question. If you could tell a younger version about yourself, about fat or fat addiction, what would it be? I would like to say a very simple answer. That's eat and enjoy. We live only once. Just take care of what you eat, yourself and your beloved ones. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for your time and explaining what's quite a complicated system, but you have convinced me that fat is a separate dynamic in the addiction profile and that we need to look at that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, so nice of you, for having me invited here today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.